Give us another clap. Perfect. Welcome to... Uh, how do I sound not so cheesy? Hello, everybody, and welcome. <laughs> Who does that? Oh, I don't know. Is it scarce? No, he's like, what's up, guys? Scarce here. There's somebody that does it really cliche. He's like, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of whatever. We could do a scarce. We could do a scarce. We could be like, hey, what's up, you guys? Scarce here. <laughs> Is that? No, that's not what he does. He's like, hey, what's up, guys? Hey, what's up, you guys? So today we got another new story for you. It's about Keemstar. I don't know if you guys know this, but like, he's been doing this really, really bad thing where he's been like talking out of the YouTubers and I have like a statement on record here that came directly from Twitter. <laughs> for those of you that don't know us, um, my name is James. I run a channel on uh, YouTube called Sweeney. Um, I haven't been in the game that long. Mostly at the moment, I'm doing histories of countries and nations. And I'm joined today by my good friend, Patrick. I'm a radio producer at the ABC. And I also have a YouTube channel called Digital Ninja. So we've got a great mix of interesting topics planned for today. This is sort of going to be a um, sort of an experiment, a, a work in progress kind of thing. We're not we're definitely not married to a lot of the ideas that we're going to be using today, but we're sort of going to be experimenting with this a little bit. We're going to try and not make this show too formatted. We'd like to sort of speak extemporaneously, but there will be some sort of, uh, what do you call it? There will be some sort of format to it, at least in the early days. And we've got a couple of talking points that we want to stress on. These are things that matter to the two of us, would you say? Is that a fair, fair way of saying it? Yeah, these are things we're pretty passionate about. Yeah. And uh, we love talking about just, you know, going out uh, and just talking about these things. Where, yeah, just on the weekends, day, whenever, so, yeah. whenever we hang out and stuff. And we're like, hey, this is the new age. This could be a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, we're just going to have a bit of a conversation as we normally do on like a, a Tuesday afternoon or something. For those of you listening to this, we probably recorded this a lot further in the past than what you're actually hearing it now in real time. So if these topics seem a little bit dated to you, uh, humble apologies. We'll try to keep things as relevant as possible. Try and cover some topics that are still going to be relevant in the future. And yeah, we'll just um, sort of make it up as we go along, as most broadcasters do. So there's a rather alarming sort of trend in the news industry, not so much here in Australia, but overseas, especially the United States, where some larger companies uh, are starting to get a greater stranglehold on, on the news business. They're beginning to buy up smaller broadcasting companies and, and become sort of larger broadcasting networks that broadcast to a number of local audiences. And this was a pretty big deal, uh, probably a month or two ago now. Um, there was this video that came out uh, from the Sinclair Broadcasting Network. Let's just be clear here. How much of a reach does Sinclair actually have? You're a person who is aware of these things. Like, break it down for those listeners who don't know. You know, you, you sort of, you get this understanding that, you know, the local news is local, surely. You know, like, it, how big is the Sinclair group actually really? So the Sinclair Broadcasting Group is a pretty large broadcaster. It has 193 TV stations spaced out across the entire United States. They're all local broadcasting stations. However, they're looking at acquiring um, the Tribune Broadcasting Group, which uh, has another 40 stations. So once that goes through, they'll have 233 TV stations across the entire country. Now, it's a bit hard to get the exact 235 figures. 235 as, we, as we're currently looking. Ah, even more. 
So uh, if you guys are interested, there's a great, uh, there's a lot of great infographics. I'm looking at one right now that's um, produced by Vox. So uh, we'll leave a link to that down below in the show notes and you can have a look at that. And the tabs show the current markets of Sinclair's broadcasting group and then with the acquisition of Tribune. And uh, like Patrick says before, it's quite alarming. What Right now we're looking at 39% of US viewers, which is staggering. We're looking at nearly 40% of US viewers who get this as their main source of news. If you switched on the TV in America and um, put the local news on, you would see the Sinclair Broadcasting Group in 39% of um, the TV markets over there. And that's just currently. So we're looking at those numbers currently. If we're looking at with the acquisition of Tribune, that number goes up to 72%. That means that they have a lot of influence over American households. At the moment, they reach about 2.2 million people a night on their local um, news broadcasts. And when it comes to local news broadcasts, generally speaking, these TV stations are given full autonomy to do things. They might have some um, national news that they have to cover. But most of the time with broadcasters, they're not given direction to, to specifically put something in their bulletin. However, it's a bit different with the Sinclair Broadcasting Group. Yeah, the must-runs. Local news networks actually have to block out time out of their broadcasts every single day for must-runs. They have things that, that range from these sort of right-wing opinion-based pieces that are trying to sway people's opinions and things like that, all the way up to these terrorist alerts that they run and that are basically making sort of anything into news. So basically, there could be nothing in the world going on at any given point. They still have a must-run on those terrorist alerts. They have to, every single night, they have to block out time out of their own broadcasting time to put in a terrorist alert about something in the world that's got to do with terrorism. It's pretty interesting. So there's a wide variety of these must-runs that are going on, and they're very, very politically motivated, to say the least. And in some cases, there's some pretty interesting things going on. So obviously, there's not terrorist news every single day, or at least there, there are things happening that aren't exactly newsworthy, but they're forced to put in something terrorism-related that's sent from the Sinclair Broadcasting Group's headquarters. But there was one thing that gained particular notoriety, and that was one of the must-runs that was just a script sent out to each TV station. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy, that one. It, there was a fantastic mashup of this must-run that was given to these news anchors. It had to be read directly by the news anchors and the, the typical teams that they have that they run on their evening news or whatever. And each one of them was given this teleprompted script on the dangers of fake news and the dangers of political punditry and the dangers of biased media. And it, it couldn't have been uh, more tone deaf. It couldn't have been more, and this is just my opinion here, but it was just this very interesting disregard for, it, it was hypocrisy, really. It was, they were throwing their journalistic reputations on that speech. Yeah, and it was really incongruous um, to me seeing these things that th these anchors were expected to broadcast because, you know, every news organization has these kind of ads. They might not editorialize as much as the Sinclair Broadcasting Group does, but every local affiliate will sort of make up their own scripts to do with these. Here in Australia, each major city as well as regional areas have their own news broadcasts. They're given the free agency to make up their own promos to promote their news. And they script them themselves, they film them themselves, 
and there's no sort of must runs that are here in Australia. So this was absolutely bizarre to me. Yeah, um, we, we'd encourage you listeners to do a little bit of research into this yourself. It's an absolutely fascinating story and it's it's frankly frightening just from our seat over here in Australia where it has nothing to do with us. It's reminiscent of some very interesting media's control over the public, you know, that sort of fear-mongering that we expect to see in, in novella and cinema. It is shocking and uh, they've got power in their hands and it's not necessarily that the power in their hands is what's dangerous what's dangerous is the potential for what they could do with it which wouldn't be as cause for such an alarm if they hadn't been seen to be misusing that power already every news broadcast aspires to be trustworthy and to be influential in telling people what's happening around the world anyone in the news business will tell you that's one of the ultimate goals to ensure that people can trust the news that you're bringing to them every night this just rips the sinclair broadcasting group's trustworthy to shreds so we've got a very interesting segue here into another topic because the regulatory body that controls this is the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. That's a federally uh, controlled commission by the government of the United States that is in charge of sorting all these sorts of things out. And there's been some moving and shaking within the FCC to change the laws restricting these kinds of monopolies. And it looks like it's going to pass just, just from where we are now. It may have already passed by the time this goes live. And the FCC has also been in the news recently for... A similar scandal. Talk to me, Patrick, about net neutrality. Oh, don't even get me started. It's not a fun topic, is it? It really uh, isn't. No, the, the current head of the FCC, Ajit Pai, wants to repeal net neutrality because he's uh, very much into sort of free market economics. And that's his rationale for wanting to let uh, the Sinclair Broadcasting Group acquire Tribune because it's a free market. And companies should be able to do whatever they want. The United States politics has always been this, you know, um, if you look at their partisan politics, we're looking at those on the one side of the political spectrum that believe in that. They believe in free market. They believe in unregulated economy. They believe in monopolies. They believe that the market will sort things out. And uh, Ajit Pai is definitely subscribing to that ideal. He's already got conflicts of interest in that regard. And... um, He's become the head of the FCC and the previous head of the FCC has has basically disapproved of everything this guy is doing. And unfortunately, we struggle to be unbiased because both Patrick and I are content creators. Our our livelihood is, is the internet. So it's, it's becoming quite unnerving. You know, the internet was created as this stable network that, that can't be brought down easily. And it was created as sort of a, a democratic platform. So anyone could post anything, anyone could set up their own website, and that's still the case. However, internet service providers have their own interest in these things. Because at the end of the day, they are businesses, and businesses need to make money. That's right. One of the troubling aspects of that is that they want to prioritize their own content ahead of everything else on the internet. Yeah, and it's not that's not hearsay. The, these are actual things that have happened in the past. These are things that we can point to and say, hey, look, you, you said you weren't going to disrespect net neutrality, and yet you did it in the past. You look at Comcast, which is one of the largest ISPs in America. You know, it wants to prioritize its cable services over someone like Netflix because they make money off these cable services. So if they can get faster cable, then they can market it to someone that way. Yeah, precisely. But 
as the rules stand, as the law stands, they can't do that. It's called, uh, uh, I'll probably put some link to what this is in the show notes, but it's called a Title II carrier, basically meaning that they're both not responsible for whatever comes through the pipes, but also they cannot have any influence over it either. So if it's used for nefarious purposes, they have that protection. The illustration that you often hear is a road with a car on it. Like whoever built the road doesn't get in trouble because a bank robber used it to get away. But at the same time, they also, um, they can't monopolize it. So they can't use it to assert their own gains and they can't make people pay extra money to use the fast lanes or things like that. So they, you take the benefits with the restrictions. And that's what Title II means. It means that you're a common carrier for the benefit of the whole nation or country or whatever this law that was passed recently i think it was last year is basically just destroyed that the internet is no longer in the united states a title to common carrier they are now a free and open market whose infrastructure can be used by private companies to do whatever they want unrestricted and that's an interesting step because there's another sort of platform that's undergoing this debate at the moment and that's facebook Yet another internet-based story that's been uh, on everyone's lips at the moment. Uh, not just a internet story, but it's, you know, affecting a few shareholders' pockets at the moment as well. That's right. It always tends to affect the shareholders' pockets when these companies get into a scandal. Scandal? What scandal are you talking about, Patrick? Please tell me more. I'll get to that in a second, <laughs> but uh, I think Facebook would like to be known as one of these uh, Title II carriers. They're claiming to be just a platform that hosts people's content. However, they hold a surprising amount of influence. It's slowly, insidiously been building over the years, and it's only sort of come to a head in the last month or two with this Cambridge Analytica scandal. Yeah, sort of one of the earliest delves into the investigation into this was, of course, the uh, United States election, which we won't talk about too much. No, this isn't a Trump uh, podcast. (laughs) uh, It's the uh, dreaded T word. Yeah, so the election of the United in the United States, the federal federal election in two thousand and sixteen or something. Two thousand and seventeen. Oh, sixteen. The election. It was inaugurated on sixteen. Ah, I don't know. Whatever, whatever the last election was, two thousand something. Um. Yeah. So they they were doing investigations that that um. That election was meddled in by foreign powers, particularly those in Russia. They found that there were these Russian-based hackers and influencers that had influenced the election. And Facebook got caught up in this because it found out that Facebook was used in a lot of these uh, interferences in the election, both in terms of who they were selling ads to, who they were, what kind of messages were being propagated. It was very, very interesting the way these um, uh, people in foreign countries were basically buying people's attention and buying people's habits from sources that and then being used to actually influence a federal election and then later it was found out that there was a massive data harvesting scandal with a company called Cambridge Analytica yeah so Cambridge Analytica set up a survey on Facebook's website and because that was set up as an academic researching platform it meant that they were able to access a lot more of people's data than what regular businesses can. And what happened was that they they let this data be used for rather nefarious purposes in sort of influencing elections. 
so that if if you don't know how that that works basically any service you use on facebook has terms and conditions that come along with it and you've got to click the little i agree button you click the button and say yeah i want to be part of this no problem but the glitch in the system was that the infrastructure that Facebook uses provided the way for this company to harvest the data of everyone on your friends list if you'd click the accept button. Yeah, so even if you didn't consent to uh, Cambridge Analytica's survey, it meant that if you were friends with someone who did, then you were compromised as well. So any of your data could have been forwarded on. So where does it stand now? How many people have they estimated to be affected? I think Facebook came out and said 87 million people. Mm-hmm. They've released a tool, a page that you can go onto on Facebook's site that tells you whether or not your data was compromised, whether or not you personally used the Cambridge Analytica quiz or whether one of your friends did. As it stands thus far, only three people in Australia were directly compromised by using the Cambridge Analytica survey. However that could extend to hundreds uh, of other people because, you know, people that were on their friends list were compromised. If you're listening to this, like, in the way, way future, Facebook was basically this thing that everyone used at one point. (laughs) And this is the scandal that made everyone delete their accounts. Nobody uses it anymore because they were weary of this scandal. (laughs) (laughs) We We grew up in the Facebook generation, and I do know people that have actually shut down their accounts. Have you deleted yours? Uh, well, I, I don't I don't use mine, so we'll, we'll put it that way. I've, I, I don't think I've properly used Facebook in probably about five years. So no, I haven't deleted it, but it's, it's, a, it's a crisis of convenience, unfortunately, because this is something in everyone's lives. Even though Facebook's active users are now in the middle-aged and elderly demographic, they are still very important in other things, instant messaging services. It's one of the most pos- po- uh, popular instant messaging services in the world. Invitations to events. It's the only way people do it. If you want to have a party or something and you're inviting somebody... Yeah, and I think it's um, fantastic to see this discussion about what data and information people are sharing to businesses and social networks um, as a whole. Because having studied this at university, I've got a good understanding of how businesses collect data on people and how they use that data to, um, to affect their business model. You know, they use these analytics to uh, understand people's behavior and better target their services or products. Yeah. It's opened up a very interesting debate as well, because as well as the people who are obviously saying, you know, no, this is a breach of my privacy or those sorts of things. There is a argument to be had about, is your information really yours? You know, do you have the right to secrecy? Do you have the right to your information? That's opened up a whole other can of worms. Yeah. Is privacy dead? Um, yeah. In this age, can you reasonably expect your, um, you know, personal information to remain private and still have a, a meaningful social presence on the internet? Yeah, and like um, the way people harvest information, it's sort of it's a dirty word, harvesting information. But in the same way that you perform any other task, you know, if you if you visit a dry cleaners once a week, you're out there in public, people can see you visiting that dry cleaner once a week. The owner of the dry cleaner knows you. They know your face. They've got your details. They've got a, they've used you've used your credit card there. He could sell that information. He could say to somebody, "Hey, this person comes here once a week. Wouldn't it be great if you 
at the time that they arrived to this laundromat be outside selling something that they want. Please sign up to our uh, dry cleaner matic <laughs> rewards program so we can uh, find out more information about you and on sell it to third parties. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's very interesting the way people look at, you know, privacy and it's like uh, people have treated the online world in this way that says, you know, this is my private information, that kind of thing, you know, in the same way that you'd say, I wouldn't want my text messages being looked at by anyone. And yet we're happy to have a conversation in public and have people around us listening to us. But of course, we're censoring ourselves when we're in public. We won't say anything too offensive when we're in public in case somebody's listening. The internet has been this far more private place, this place where we can store all, all our you know, uh, private information and where we're putting things like where I went on holiday last year and here's the photos and this is what it was like and this is what the weather was like and hey, wouldn't you like to buy a surfboard now because you were on holiday at the beach, you know? I got stung by a company that was harvesting my data unknowingly a few months Tell ago. Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds interesting. Oh, it's a whole can of worms. I'm very diligent about my privacy online. Um, As am I, for sure. I try to avoid sharing my location in tweets or photos. I try to avoid, you know, sharing personal information like my birthday or holidays. Geotags on photos, man. Oh, when did that become a thing? It's absolutely mad. And it's crazy looking through any photo album. You're like, oh, this was taken in you know, Switzerland. And you're like, that's a bit weird. Yeah. And it means that, you know, I've got a lot of systems and processes in place to um, sort of make sure that my data isn't being accessed by nefarious people. Is it on you, though? Should the default be that, yes, you will have your information taken? I think it should be, but it's definitely not the case, as I found out a few months ago. So it should be the default that you say no? Yeah, the default should be, I don't want my data shared. Yeah. I don't want you to know anything about me beyond this is what I want from this company and I'm going to take it and that's it. I don't, and I yet, don't... if that were true, Facebook wouldn't exist, kind of because you are the product to Facebook. That's, that's what they exactly do. That's exactly right. Or they'd be charging you, uh, you know, some kind of fee to use yeah, it every month. Yeah, subscription-based service or something, you know. Their business model is run on ads and ads only work if they know you and you are your attention span. So... Uh, Attention is what grabs people. Your attention is the commodity. It's not just Facebook that's, that's harvesting your data. You know, private companies have been doing this for years through reward programs and things like that. But uh, as they install these, they have these apps available on your phone, it opens up a whole other door to them recording data about you. As I learned a few months ago with this uh, app I had on my phone. This app I had on my phone? <laughs> yes. I, I installed a few apps on my phone, as uh, some people tend to do. <laughs> and um, I'm very strict about what permissions these apps have access to but there was one that i forgot to turn off uh, location permissions to Mm. i had my location data on because i was flying my drone that week i checked this this app that logs every time an app uh, accesses my location and it said that this app had accessed my location 3071 times in the last seven days in the last seven days. Yeah, so if you do the math, that works out to about once every three minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I want to sort of get on record here to say that this this kind of information harvesting and, and data collection 
is not a bad thing. It's not necessarily nefarious. It's not going to necessarily be used for nefarious purposes. There's a lot of conveniences that come along with it. There's the kind of thing where if you're known to take a certain route every day, your phone knows, okay, he leaves home at this time. He gets to work at this time. This is where he lives. This is where he works. That information can be useful. Your, Your phone can wake you up early to say, hey, there's traffic on your route this morning. Um, It's not necessarily one of these things that is, you know, it's all doom and gloom and it's all bad. But the problem lies in where who has access to that information. That's right. And it's all about convenience because that's why these apps are recording this information. This app that recorded my location every three minutes, it could be used to say, hey, you're, you're in this spot. Why don't you try our service? Or with Facebook recording all our information, it's so that it can not only better target ads, but build a better service for people to use. Right. Like uh, myself and you probably wouldn't want to get ads for baby products or like nappies or diapers or something like that. We, we That just wouldn't be relevant to us and we'd, we'd move past that. But if they showed us an ad for something else, like if, if something you were legitimately interested in, say, flying a drone and they started advertising drone products to you that would be useful so you're getting convenient ads rather than the horrible ads that you just pay no attention to so there's a trade-off given all that facebook knows about me if they were starting to show me baby ads i'd start to get a bit (laughs) concerned Uh, they might know something that i don't this app that was on my phone that was recording my location um it wasn't a social networking app it was the qantas airline app oh my goodness Yeah, of all things that was monitoring my location 24-7, it was an airline. Now, I reached out to them for comment, but By the way, Qantas is an airline in Australia. Yeah. Just by the way. The Queensland and Northern Territory Air Service, for those who are interested. Yeah, which should be pronounced Cantas. There's no U in it, but anyway. I reached out to them for comment, and while talking to them, they said that a lot of the reason why they access our location is because it lets them know if you're coming to an airport. It can send you notifications. Hey, you want to check in? You can use these services and things like that. So there's an element of convenience to it. But at the same time, it makes me deeply uncomfortable to see such a rather innocuous app tracking my location so closely. They know where I live. They know what roads I take to get to work. They know where I work. So it's it's really terrifying to see the sort of things that these companies are collecting. They, they frame them as conveniences, but they can be very contrived. Qantas saying to you that, hey, we want to, you know, uh, give you notifications so you can like check in and stuff like that. That's something that they've definitely framed as like, oh, this is for you. It's for your convenience. But at the end of the day, that's not convenient for you at all. Like the, the way the system works is is fine. Going to the airport and checking your luggage and getting on a plane. It's a system that doesn't need any alter- alterations to it. It doesn't need any conveniences. Sure, you want notifications that your plane has been delayed or something like that. You get those via email anyway from the, the company from that you bought the ticket from. So there is the potential for these contrived conveniences that are being pitched by people in board meetings to their superiors to say, hey, this is what we're doing with all this cool new technology. That's dangerous. When you start to contrive things where you say, here's a piece of technology that exists. What are you doing to use that technology? Mr. Board member, tell me what you're doing to do that. So the Qantas guy who said, yeah, we want to start doing geolocation services is starting to say, he's standing in front of a room full of executives saying, this is going to be great. You know, this is so convenient for people. It's contrived. 
and it's one of those things that has the potential to be bad. You know, that location data that Qantas has harvested is uh, incredibly valuable to some people. Now, I don't know whether Qantas decides to on-sell that data. Um, I asked them that and they haven't got back to me, but um, yeah. But even if it's just being recorded as a convenience for me, that makes me deeply uncomfortable, let alone the whole other side of it where that's a, a valuable commodity that they can sell. I don't know about you, but all this just makes me want to put on a tinfoil hat and live in a cave somewhere. Absolutely. Now, uh, please give us your uh, feedback as well. We're, we're very interested to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah, we'd love to know what you think about all these topics. Tell me, Patrick, about your first video. Oh, I don't, I don't even want to get into it. All right, put the microphone away. We're, we're ending this now. Yep, if, you don't want to talk, if you don't want to talk about it, we might as well put everything away. Let's go home. <laughs> no, it's just, it's so cringeworthy because um, one of the worst and best things that happened to me was uh, I bought a video camera when I was uh, 14. And what does a video camera do? Well, it records video. <laughs> and, you know, being a 14-year-old uh, growing up on a strict diet of Ray William Johnson, Vlog Brothers, Wheezy Waiter, all the uh, good, good old days good content stuff. of YouTube, I thought, I want to be these guys. So I'm going to buy a video camera and I'm going to start posting things on YouTube. Yeah. And that's the day it all changed. Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I'm sure your first video was great. I'm sure it was so good. Tell me about it, please. Uh, I'm just a one-hit wonder, you know. Um, <laughs> I put that out there and none of my content compares to it. So having absolutely no uh, on-camera experience, having no editing experience, I just set up this camera in the kitchen of my old house and just started talking at it. I can't even remember what the topic was. Sure. It was as you would expect it to be. It was so cringeworthy. I recorded all these videos over summer, over the summer break from school. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to be a huge, super popular YouTuber by the time I come back from the holidays. And you're going to be a superstar. Yeah, for sure. I got back to school and I was the laughing stock of everyone. You're kidding me. Yeah, I, I posted a few on Facebook. Quite rightly, I copped quite a lot of flack from my friends when I got back to school. <laughs> Kids can be so cruel. You know, I always thought I was my harshest critic, but uh, hell hath no Turns fury out like the public year is 10 your hardest. hardest. You're 10 kids. You're 10 kids oh, are your harshest critic. It's the worst. Unbelievable. But that sort of uh, forced me to become a bit of a recluse online for a little while, sort of figure out my own style and things like that. I gradually got better at being on camera and things like that. But you had to at least wait until you were out of year 10. Mm. All I can say is uh, thank God that this first video that I made on YouTube doesn't exist anymore. I, uh, I think it might. Oh, no. Anything that goes online is duplicated. I don't know if anybody knows this, but like it, it's, it kind of seems um, counterintuitive if you, if you think about the concept of deleting something, but everything is out there. It's all stored on a nice big hard drive. Somewhere in Atlantis, it's all on a big hard drive for us to go in and harvest one day. So one day, somebody's going to go back into that vault and they're going to see Year 10 Patrick doing his very embarrassing first YouTube video. Oh, that'd be my worst nightmare. How do you feel about that? At this stage, it seems like only data center employees of Google can access those sort of things because 
you know, obviously... The most trustworthy people in the world. Yeah, I've, I've come to realise uh, perhaps about five or ten years too late that uh, nothing's deleted off the internet. Everything that I did as a teenager, all the cringeworthy Facebook posts, all the even greater cringeworthy YouTube videos, they're still up there. They may have been deleted off the public internet, but, you know, these social networking companies record everything. They, they keep a copy of it. So all those Snapchats you sent out, knowing Let's that- Let's talk they'll... about Snapchat. Oh. Please, let us talk about Snapchat because that's, that's like the pinnacle of the problem with this, isn't it? Yeah, when it first came out, it was heralded as this amazing tool that all the photos would disappear after 10 seconds. But not long after it came out, they revealed that they record every uh, photo and video. They... Every single one. So it's sitting on a server in Santa Cruz. Not to mention the the very quick addition to the Snapchat platform of screenshots. Mm. Like, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> somebody else has got that now. That's not going away. You've yeah. duplicated it because, of course, like every single thing, screenshots are stored in a mobile phone's photos app or whatever, and that's all that's all backed up to the cloud. Mm. So we've got we've got duplicates happening. We've got very embarrassing things that kids are sending to each other and yeah. things like that. I mean, uh, granted, that's just one very bad example of the way these things are used. There's a very interesting take on on information being stored and duplicated, and it never gets deleted. No, and that's the terrifying part. Yeah, that's um, the very terrifying part. I know of a few things there on the internet of me that are extremely embarrassing. Not my first YouTube videos. However, there are other things on the internet that I've done. I won't say what they are to <laughs> give it away. But they're, they're extremely embarrassing. I have no ability to take them down off the internet. Yeah, it's out of your power. Yeah, and I, I've spoken to the people who owns the admin accounts and things like that, and they're like, I've forgotten the password. Mm. They're going to be up there forever. Yeah, that's horrible. But, you know, for average people like us, it's probably not too big of a deal. I mean, the potential for, for misuse is high. But what we can be thankful for, Patrick, is that, you know, leaders, people in power, <laughs> they're they're not at all held to these kinds of things. Thank goodness we have responsible leaders who don't delete their emails because, you know, they would be very careful about, you know, the information that they put on the internet that they used. And of course, you know, at least we don't have anybody who's trying to cover up anything um, that may be nefarious in their in their emails or their or their social networks. We can be thankful for that. Of course. I don't know if you're going anywhere with this. <laughs> Nowhere. I wasn't going anywhere with this at all. Okay, you're just speaking extemporaneously. Pretty much, yeah. Like, we can trust our politicians. We can, we can trust them. Patrick and I are ostensibly YouTubers. I don't like the name YouTube. I don't I don't like that name. I think people less and less do. It's sort of just a nickname at this point. But we are online content creators and have been for quite a while. Post, post, post. Uh, we grew up with people who were, frankly, millionaires. By the time we were in sort of mid to late high school, that kind of thing. So it wasn't an unachievable goal for people like us. And there's been an explosion of people who've grown up with YouTube. They've grown up with people who create independently. We are sort of people that decided that, hey, we want to make something online. So coming from that perspective, we'd like to talk about YouTube. We're going to talk about YouTube a lot. 
it's possible. You know, I apologize if it does. But it's a big part of our lives. Um, you know, James, you're ostensibly employed by YouTube to make YouTube videos. Ostensibly, yeah. That's I mean, basically my, my only source of income. I love to make YouTube videos. I make several cents every month yeah, on, uh, it's a good living. on the advertising. But I've been making YouTube videos, as I said, uh, in the last segment for, you know, probably about 10 years now. Yeah, it's it's amazing that we live in a world where somebody can just pick up a camera and just do something, you know. There's been a few things happening in the last year or two that have really sort of made us refocus, you know, whether or not we want to be known as YouTubers or be YouTubers. This channel that we're both huge fans of is Philip DeFranco, and uh, he, he runs a sort of independent news organization where he collects and collates all these independent stories and things like that and he presents it in his independent way and then he sort of breaks it down it's a very 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 popular show most youtubers know it most youtubers love it some people don't but he's created this thing from the ground up he's got a really really great story and he said something very interesting about youtube he's been really struggling lately and it's i love the content he puts out and he's so good he's really and he's He's like a, a sort of a dad figure on YouTube as well. Yeah, pretty much. YouTube has a lot of dad figures. Yeah. YouTube really does have like, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of these uh, channels that have been sort of broadcast as being like, oh, this is like YouTube's daddy, you know, but like yeah. DeFranco is like one of those. He's up there. Been around long enough that he's just a part of the furniture. And, you know, it breaks my heart to see this guy, you know, YouTube's dad get sort of beaten down so much by the system. And he, he's, he's called YouTube, he's, he's used the words that YouTube is becoming like a neglectant alcoholic father. Those are words chosen very carefully from a person like Philip DeFranco. He's, he's always sort of extremely diligent to what words he, he uses for, you know, commentary and describing things. And that's a pretty loaded statement. That's a very loaded statement. It seems like they just don't care about their creators. I don't know whether it's always been the case or well, whether- YouTube is Okay, first of all, YouTubers have whinged and moaned about the corporate version of YouTube for a long time. This is not new, right? This is something that's been going on for a long time. People are whinged and moaning, oh, YouTube's doing this to me, YouTube's doing, doing that to me. But it's getting bad. It sucks that that seems like our default state. We have to sort of have that position. We, we have to sort of uh, complain to YouTube because they're just- they don't have their, their creators' uh, welfare and their creators' long-term prospects. Um, they don't have the YouTubers' best interests at heart. No, not at all. It, it's never been more evident in, than in the last couple of years. Like, I know that the adpocalypse um, hit you pretty hard, James. It did, yeah. It happened at probably the worst time as well because my, my content was just getting off the ground. And we're talking about when a channel starts to grow, you can sort of start to rely on it, monetarily speaking. Now, when I say rely on, what I'm saying to you now, if you ever want to quote this, I make less on YouTube than Australia's minimum wage. So, people who are doing minimum wage jobs here in Australia are earning more than me just on YouTube, right? But it was fine. It was like, it was okay. Like, it was building and I was building my monetary gain and I was trying to form it into a sustainable career if I knew, okay, I get this many views equals this much money, blah, 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 blah. I can make rent or whatever. And the adpocalypse 
it it nosedived. It really did. It took it took a nosedive in my predicted amount of income, and it couldn't have happened at a worse time because it happened when the channel was taking off. To give a sort of a brief recap of what the apocalypse was, it was basically the media sort of got a hold of a lot of these ads that were playing against pretty horrible things. Yeah, there were some videos that had, you know, maybe 30 or 40 views that were terrorist recruiting videos or uh, violent and offensive content that had some ads playing beside it. So some news companies found these things and they, they published it as, as a total outrage. You know, why, why are these brands being presented beside violent and offensive content? In essence, almost a non-story. Yeah, pretty much. But the trouble is that the advertising industry just freaked out, didn't yeah. it? It's, it? There was kind of a domino effect here because you had these six companies, which every YouTuber now knows as the six companies, we won't say their names. They, in essence, were the first to sort of bow. They bowed to the pressure from these media organizations because this has been spoken about at length by many people. They bowed to the pressure from the media to say, hey, we don't want bad press. This affects our markets. This affects our corporate structure. We're going to bow out. We're going to pull our ads off of YouTube. That was the first domino. Second domino was YouTube bowed to the advertisers. And they instituted this massive restructuring of YouTube that we see today. And it's constantly being worked on. It's constantly being tied down. It's being altered. And there's being machine learning and algorithms that are working hand in hand to sort of change YouTube. And it's resulted in some pretty bad things. Yeah, well, these machine learning algorithms are just so rudimentary. It's like a four-year-old deciding whether or not videos are, you know, advertiser-friendly or not advertiser-friendly. The algorithms just pick up on things that just don't really make sense. I I recently put on a a series on my channel which were 10-second movie reviews. and Top quality content, though. Oh, yes. Yeah. Content with a capital C. These videos were, you know, totally innocuous. They didn't infringe on anyone's copyright. Don't tell me you got demonetized. Two of them got demonetized. Oh my goodness. Are you serious? But I didn't you know actually why. know about this. Yeah, the, the videos uh, were demonetized because of the titles. That's ridiculous. Every, every one of the movie reviews had the movie title in the, right. the video title. Right. So what happened was two of the movie titles weren't advertiser friendly, were they? No, they had words like, I don't know. One of them was death at a funeral. Yeah, death. You can't, yeah. Put, you can't put an ad next to death. That's not advertiser friendly. Um, and the other one was the naked gun. Oh, nudity. Nudity. Oh, no, that's, that's totally off You can't limits. have the word naked in a video. No. You cannot have it. Not at all. It's not ridiculous. even like old Renaissance paintings. You can't display them either. I can't believe you would put something like that on the internet, Patrick. I know. What, what was I thinking? You know, that's totally uh, offensive to advertisers. So I, I just should have, you know, censored those videos, bleeped out naked or death or gun. Dr. Mountain Cola is very angry with you and is not going to put an ad next to your video. <sighs> you know, you should, be, you should be ashamed of yourself. I failed all 20 people who watch these videos. I don't think YouTube is going to be a career for me. You know, seeing all these demonetization scandals and seeing them uh, at the start of this year wanting to terminate my partnership, I realized that YouTube just, they, they don't care about their creators. They don't value their creators, even though 
that's what drives their platform. And it's disappointing because I, I'd love to make a living making YouTube videos. I seem to be on track uh, last year when I was starting daily videos and trying to put out news content and I was really figuring out my voice. But it's just not stable enough yet for me to say, all right, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to focus on this entirely. One of the things that people used to really, really hate about YouTube was their uh, lack of communication, which is still something they're very, very much guilty of. But the other thing that they've now become guilty of is not providing stability. It's so hard to find a stable job in the creative industries, but YouTube just keeps shooting themselves in the foot every time they try to make their platform more stable. They just, they restricted things. They were like, oh, please, advertisers, don't pull out. We'll severely restrict what kind of ads can be placed on what kind of videos. Hmm. And look, the whole thing seemed like a bit of a, a storm in a teacup, didn't it? Because between Google and Facebook, they control 85% of the online advertising market. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the ones that are, you know, sucking up nearly all the money that advertisers are putting out there to advertise on the internet. Even though, you know, it's a, a small scandal that a couple of videos slip through the demonetization net at first. Advertisers aren't going to go away because where Never. are they going to go away to? Exactly. They've still got budgets. Uh, they've still got ad budgets that they need to spend. And I mean, we're not talking about conjecture here. Those companies returned. Mm. They came back. Yeah, they're, they're all back there. Uh, people's revenue have returned, not necessarily to original levels before the adpocalypse, but the advertisers came back after a while. There was a void that would easily have been filled because if you take out the top six advertisers on your platform, that just makes it more accessible to smaller advertisers and then drives the price down. It's simple economics here. Mm. You're talking about the most effective advertising in the world, Google. Like it doesn't get better. You advertise, if you want to advertise, you're advertising on Google because they hold such a big piece of the pie. And they bowed to these companies. It's shocking. It really, really is shocking. They passed on those losses to their creators. They said, we don't care about you. Your income doesn't matter. You don't matter to us. And we're going to be extremely untransparent. And we're not going to communicate properly with you. It was, it was heartbreaking, really. Because I'm a small channel, I sort of never was hit by the adpocalypse or if I, if I was, it wasn't noticeable because I get such small revenue. But some changes that YouTube did this year really hit my channel hard. It, it almost basically yeah. ended it. Of course, you were a victim of the... Um yeah, I don't know what we would call this. What's it's, the, what is it called? It's like the Adpocalypse uh, version 3, version 4. Well, version 3 was was the kid, the YouTube oh, kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, Elsagate. Elsagate, that's the one. So that's, yeah. that's Adpocalypse V3.0. So this is V4.0. For those who aren't sort of small creators on YouTube, um, basically what YouTube decided to do at the start of this year was increase the requirements for their partnership program. That's the, the program that lets you put ads on your videos and make money on YouTube. It's a great idea to try and scrutinize the sort of people that, that are allowed on this platform, but they made one big mistake. That was that they weren't going to grandfather in the smaller YouTubers who didn't meet these targets. So basically the new targets are you need a thousand subscribers 
and you need 4,000 hours of watch time in the past year to qualify for a YouTube partnership. I fell short of those goals. Your YouTube channel's been around for ages. Yeah, yeah. I've been a YouTube partner since uh, 2011. I've been on YouTube since 2008. So it's not like I'm a newcomer. I have an established history of being a safe advertising option. I've got a bunch of videos on there and it's all pretty innocuous stuff yeah Yeah. apart from maybe a a little bit of profanity in my earlier videos it's all pretty advertiser friendly yeah but youtube decided they weren't going to grandfather in all these channels and this has affected a lot of people is this affected effectively if you're thinking about it the next generation of youtubers I don't know the exact figures, but I'd imagine it would have hit hundreds of thousands of YouTubers. And YouTube sent out a mass email saying, you don't meet our requirements, so we're terminating your partnership in 30 days. You don't matter. All it said to me, it just screamed, you don't matter. We don't value you. You're not wanted on this platform. You don't make us money. We don't warrant your attention, so go somewhere else. That's what they said to hundreds of thousands of creators, to their future generation of YouTubers that will drive content on the site. If you're looking at the large creators now, if they were your size and they were hit with that, can you imagine the potential for growth on these channels? Like there's an, argu- there's an argument that can be made, and this is one that I don't necessarily subscribe to, is that you know it, it provides motivation for these people to be like, hey, I'm gonna get my watch time up, I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna get that. But the problem is that YouTube doesn't necessarily promote content that doesn't have ads on it because it doesn't make them money. They don't have a vested interest in building audiences for people who are not partners. So there's a there's a rebound effect there and it's a, it's a knock-on effect to being a demotivating factor. You look at the personal aspects of becoming a creator, you're putting yourself out there, you're trying to achieve your dream, you're trying to make something and you're being hit with this saying, no, You can't be a partner. It doesn't matter that you've been making YouTube videos for six years. You're not worthy. Yeah, so this seemed like the final nail in the coffin to me. But the next day after I got this email saying they're going to terminate my partnership in 30 days, I thought, how can I get around this? Because YouTube has now just become algorithms and... It's a system. And the only way to get on top is finding a way to beat the system. I met all of the requirements for the partnership program except the watch time. Except the watch time, yeah. You didn't meet the watch time requirements because you had something like a 1,000 subscribers at the time. Yeah, so I had more than a 1,000 subscribers. I had more than 10,000 views on my channel, which was another requirement they had in a long time ago. I just didn't have the amount of watch time on my videos from the past year. I had about half of it. So all I needed was to get enough watch time to retain my partnership. And so you that's when you put out the video. You know, a lot of my videos are pretty short, so I don't get much watch time. So I thought, okay, YouTube wants long form content. I'm going to give them some long form content. <laughs> so some I really long form content. Oh yeah. So I uploaded a 10 hour long video and told all my subscribers to just watch it all the way through, if you can. This video was just dash cam video looped, so I could get the watch time needed. I was one of those. I just like put on the video on repeat and just left it on. Thank you, James, you, uh, you helped save my channel. I'm a saint. So <laughs> what that meant was that 
you know, this wasn't making money for YouTube, but I managed to hack the requirements that YouTube put in my way. You had to play the system. Yeah, I had, had to, to play, play the, the system because it was playing me. Yeah. I did that. And lo and behold, I succeeded. Yeah. I got the watch time needed. I may have put the video on repeat on several of my iPads. And you feel dirty, right? Yeah, I, you know, this, this is a heinous thing and, and it's so stigmatized. You know, I, I copped a lot of flack from a lot of people because it's not the right way to go about things. For sure. You need to put your content out there and find an need, audience and yeah, let it you grow. need to find people to watch sure. your stuff. Yeah. But, you know, when YouTube's going to shut down your partnership, you've got to take this into your own hands and make sure they don't. Especially when it means that much to you. Yeah, exactly. Because the ones that it means a lot to are going to do that. They're going to try and beat the system. The system is inherently unfair. Like I've said before that I don't make much money from YouTube. I make an insignificant amount. I don't even meet the threshold of $100 they've set before they can start paying you. Right. It's the principle of the matter. Yeah. You know, there's... It was personal. YouTube wanted to kill my channel, so they made it personal. And this is where we get to the crux of the matter because you just should not have needed to do that. You really shouldn't have needed to. They put the ball in your court and uh, you shouldn't have had to do this. You shouldn't have had to stoop to their level to have to do this. It's so um, ignorant on their behalf to have done this because in the end, They just had to be seen to do something. They were just trying to appease people. They just want to appease advertisers, media companies, executives, board members, that kind of thing. They had to be seen to be doing something and this is what they chose, but they didn't think about the ramifications of that. They thought this is going to affect so few people who actually care about making videos. Yeah, and I think that this will mean that YouTube will sort of plateau for some time while this current generation of creators is so disincentivized by youtube because of this which is unfortunate you know it's like they don't care about anything other than meteoric rise that's just it and i think that that's that's sort of one of the things that makes success on this platform is that you need to start snowballing and and rising exponentially before you warrant any kind of attention it's quite disheartening the meteoric rise of these sort of young millennial superstars they pop out of nowhere and they've got millions and millions of subscribers overnight. Those are fair game for them because these are people who are guaranteed millions of views. They're going to advertise on them. They get special treatment. But for the people who trudge, who are trying to find their voice, who are trying to find their creative outlet, who gain their subscribers one at a time, build their audiences one step at a time, one video at a time, those people didn't matter. Yeah, no, it shows that YouTube doesn't owe you anything and that's its approach to you which would be fine if you you look at a company technically a company doesn't owe you anything but youtube's not that kind of company youtube is a company that its success is built on the symbiosis of their platform and their creators because the creators are what make it successful you can say whatever you want about oh the ellen show is on youtube now that's a successful channel oh uh, late night tv is on on youtube now that's successful and whatever those are not what YouTube's all about. Even YouTube Red, the programs that are coming out in YouTube Red that are coming out to the subscription-based service, those aren't generating the views that independent creators are. 
independent creators are what makes youtube successful it what it's what it's a free flourish of ideas and hey everyone's got their audience everyone has got their audience how do you reach that audience well if it was cinema it's an impregnable wall if it was tv it was an impregnable wall if it was music it was an impregnable wall justin bieber was discovered on the internet filming videos of himself playing the guitar yeah it's incredible that you can get that much stardom from you know your your bedroom or yeah you know just your own house how many creators the biggest creators on this platform on youtube on twitch on vine when it was still alive r.i.p they they made their own content they built it from the ground up and that was the most important part of youtube and they're they're kind of spitting in the face of that yeah and i i don't see any easy solution to this that's the trouble like um i think any platform will uh, encounter these problems uh inevitably due to its size so i don't think um you know just burning youtube to the ground and starting over with a new platform is going to solve it we also kind of need to look at the bigger picture um i'm the kind of person that tries to not look at things in isolation but look at the bigger picture youtube is a google company google is a silicon valley company silicon valley is an american area Um, they subscribe to american laws american ideals of liberalism American um, economics is found, founded upon the idea of free market. And it, as such, these people have board meetings to go to. They've got executive targets to meet. They've got, there's a whole bunch of factors at play here running these companies on capitalist um, economics that really are the driving force behind this. Every company is going to have challenges to meet in that regard. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, these are the challenges that they meet because of it. it's a product of the system that they're that you're working on. These companies need to make money to survive. They need to be contributing to survive. And if they feel, if if just one guy sticks up his hand and goes, mm, no, don't like this, don't like that, and says to the CEO and the CFO and the marketing executives, what are you doing to change this? They need to come up with a 10-point plan that they can put up in front of a projector. Three-ring binder full three, of ideas. <laughs> Three-ring binder. And say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing here. This is what we're going to do next. And that trickles down to us. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It feels like they've just been, uh, you know, having all these reactive decisions to every scandal. You know, with the the first adpocalypse, um, they were reacting to some some videos that had some ads against offensive content. So ad adpocalypse, that was two point That was the big one. Oh, okay, so there was one, one before that, and then one point the real it was one. like it was retroactively named an apocalypse. And that was the PewDiePie scandal. Oh yeah, so, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was bad. Like that that wasn't like a huge thing, but it, it set the precedent for YouTube's changes to their system. So that's the first one. The second one was what hit everyone. Yeah. The third one was uh, Elsa Gate. Elsa where, Gate. Yeah. You know, people realized there was some pretty messed up videos that were accessible on the YouTube Kids app. Yeah, and it's and it's all ver- it's all very well and good to point at the people who are suffering from the first adpocalypse and the demonetization that followed and then seeing these kids things that were branded as advertiser friendly and the crazy stuff that was going on there so it was 
inherently unfair to begin with. They were targeting people who they thought were not advertiser friendly. And the people who were slipping through the cracks were people who were advertiser friendly, like people who are making these horrible, explicit videos on the kids' YouTube app. Oh, it was such a mess. I don't even want to get into that. I don't want to get into it either. (laughs) All these decisions that they've made have been reactive decisions. You know, something's happened uh, to YouTube. There's been some kind of scandal. Knee-jerk reactions. Oh, no, what do we do? Yeah. Oh, clamp down on the advertisers or clamp down on the ads on YouTube videos. So afraid of bad press. Yeah, but, you know, what they need to start doing is, is be proactive. They need to look at, okay, we have thousands, tens of thousands of creators on our platform that, that rely on this advertising revenue or should be able to rely on this advertising revenue. Because they do owe that to people. Yeah, uh, because these are the people that actually make us a viable business. What can we do to ensure that these creators have a, a long-term viability on our platform? Yeah. And they're just not doing that anymore no. or ever. So we don't have the answers, unfortunately, but we, uh, we're, we're happy to um, hear your thoughts on the matter. Uh, this was a pretty good experiment. I think this went pretty well. Um, yeah. Hopefully we can work out the kinks because right now we're recording through... Um, socks and dish towels um and the uh, it's a very rudimentary setup duct tape to our uh, uh tripod i've got a yeah i've got a microphone duct taped to my legs in a tripod yeah mount. i've got a gopro mount holding mine up so it's a bit ghetto but uh i think it seemed to work and yeah i'm excited i'm excited this this felt like a good outlet it's good to get this on record mm. um So if you like this uh, podcast, don't forget to uh, share it on your social media and and let us know. Um, James can be found at his uh, Twitter account, Sweeney Official, S-U-I-B-H-N-E Official. And you can find me at uh, Patrick Laverick on Twitter as well. Also at your website. Oh, yeah, that's uh, www.digitalninja.co. He's got the uh, Columbia domain name because it was the only one that was available. Yeah, I couldn't find the .com one. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the next podcast. Cheers.